Welcome to the Financial Finesse Podcast, where we'll be discussing tips on how to handle your money and life with skill and style. Your host, Kathy Curtis, CFP, has been helping make finance accessible and intriguing for women for almost 20 years. You'll get savvy, actionable ideas listening to her conversations with some of the coolest and smartest women on the planet. And now, here's your host, Kathy Curtis. Hi all, this is Kathy Curtis. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast, Financial Finesse. I decided to do something a little different with this episode and share some highlights from my conversations with the savvy women of season three. I so enjoyed talking to all of them, and I hope you'll go back and listen to the entire episode. You'll learn a little something about financial planning, as well as personal things like mindset and meditating and organizing, and I know you'll get something out of it. Thanks for listening. Okay, you're bringing up a good point about the average amount of time most people will spend with a with a severe long-term care need or let's say in a nursing home. And yeah. what I'm reading is for oh, by the way there's a great study that Morningstar put puts out every year or the last couple of years about long-term care statistics and I've pulled some stats from that. And um great. for women it's the average is 3.7 years. Mm-hmm. In a nursing home, and for men, it's two point two. So right. So I like to know about those numbers because that tells me, as a financial advisor, if a client doesn't have the resources to buy more insurance, like these unlimited policies, which who wouldn't want an unlimited policy, right? But they're expensive. So if you could at least get the average amount of years, you you're getting help to cover the cost. You know, you don't have to have the cost fully covered. You're getting help for it. Absolutely. And as I like to say to families or to my single clients, you don't have to crisis manage on day one. If you have a long-term care event and you have a two-year plan, there's two years where your, your family, your friends, your loved ones are helping figure out if your need will be more ongoing longer than two years, they're helping figure out how are we going to pay for that? You know, whatever it will be. And you weigh in on that if you're available to do so. Right. But, but um, people sometimes think, well, if I can't get unlimited, why would I buy this at all? Which I think is missing the point of the stress of trying to navigate a long-term care event with no plan in place. You talk about, and I agree with you, is, and it, and it, and it relates to the no muscle, is not being afraid to live your life your own way. Yes. Not being afraid to be different. Um, And what I think has to happen, though, is to understand yourself really well. Yes. Now, to figure out what you most value as you are now, not what someone told you to value when you were young, not what, you know, the comparison thing with other people is a big issue 
right? It's hard to not compare. I think we're kind of hardwired to compare. You let me know if you agree with that. What happens if you think about this, whatever you choose in life, there are going to be far more people who are choosing something different, choosing a life that looks different than yours. So you need to get really comfortable and square on this is right and this is best for me. And I do not have to defend my life choices to anyone. I think oftentimes people fit their, yes, people are going to inevitably offer their unsolicited commentary on what you do with your life, especially when you're in a public facing role. Yes. Oftentimes that's far more a projection and about their stuff. You don't have to take that in and you don't have to defend yourself. You right. just need to live your life and know, no, this is what's best for me and what's best for my family. So it's a, I think it's important to pick out things that are really easy to understand and explain the concepts and, and speak to those fears about not having access or I'm going to lose it or I'm never going to be able to get it again. I think we do a lot of money shaming. And, and so one of the things I really wanted to do with the book was to, to not make anyone feel ashamed of the money choices they've made and help women understand that so much of it comes from the cultural conditioning that we've gotten and the messaging that we got as kids. And so even if we know what we're supposed to do, those, you know, this kind of conditioning can get in the way of that. Um, and in a really subconscious way. It's really, yes. it's really hard to, to see that sometimes, you know, to understand like, why am I making these money choices and not those money choices? A lot of us don't stop and question that. And, and if we did, you know, it might take some digging to realize, oh, I put my money in savings because I'm terrified I'm going to lose it because maybe their parents had, you know, maybe their parents lost money or they had some experience, they were exposed to something. And so that has lodged in their brain. And so they're afraid of investing themselves. So many of us carry around these stories, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, And it's so important to examine those, especially if they kind of get in the way of your wealth building efforts. And and look, I'll say this for what I have found, and maybe it's because I'm a woman, but I will often run into situations where you know, the husband's the working spouse and the wife has stayed at home. And I think it's incredibly important for women to have their own money. And it might not seem like a lot at first, putting the 6,000 or 7,000 away if you're over 50. But, you know, as I say, over 10 years of doing that, plus the growth, that turns into six figures pretty quickly. No, I agree. Spousal IRAs are definitely. So any, you take advantage of any tool that is out there, no matter how small, like, with the with the deductible IRAs, it's only six or seven thousand a year, right? But yep. then those earnings grow tax free if you keep yep. it in if you keep it in the non deductible IRA. Yeah, because what I say to clients is, look, if there was twenty dollars on the floor, I'd pick it up before I left the room. Uh, you know, every little bit. <laughs> it's true because if you max out your four hundred one k and you fund your IRA and then you add to your brokerage account and maybe you fund your kids five twenty nine and you add it all up all those little things become a big number. And we need to celebrate that more because it is so hard to save today. You know, I always tell people what's fascinating to me is the government determined that upper middle class starts at income of, I believe, $127,000. That's where the government feels like you should be set. And I'm sitting here in the Bay Area and that is still tough living on $127,000. How do you save? 
And the system since the 80s has been made to work against you. So if you are a beneficiary of an inherited IRA, it's a blessing and you need to think through it because it can be one of those things that makes the difference between a financial challenge and a financial success over the long term. What would be your top three words of wisdom for somebody who wants to be a more organized person? Oh, it's a great question. Um, Well, the first thing I would say is don't organize your life based on what you see in a magazine or on Instagram or on TV. You should really organize your life for your real life, for your real habits. Um, And if you've been struggling with disorganization your whole life, uh, don't expect things to change overnight. New habits take time to develop. So being patient with yourself and forgiving with yourself, it's, you know, learning to organize and learning to develop organizing habits is, is not unlike learning any other habit. It takes time to um, assimilate them. And then for a lot of people, they, they're under the, um, the, the, the belief that sorting and categorizing, categorizing is organizing. It's not. It's an important part of it, but it's only the first part. It's only the part that needs to happen to make everything else fall into place. But Give an example stop- of sorting and categorizing that people do in place of true organizing. They make piles. People make piles. They make lots of piles. And and then nothing ever gets done with the piles. So the hardest part in organizing is not sorting and categorizing as much as it's important. The hardest part in organizing, especially if you've got more stuff than you have space for, is what I call curating. It's making those tough decisions about what you want to keep and what you're willing to let go of. And if it was all about putting things in pretty containers, I'd be out of a job and, and you know, everybody would be able to do this so easily. So it's, you know, there's a saying in my industry uh, that clutter is nothing more than delayed decision making. But I've yeah. often asked myself, well, why, why is it delayed? Well, the one tip that I didn't mention that I think it's really important is don't make your stuff more important than you are. Mm, that's a great one. Yeah, I think meditation is a, is a really key component to, to building out a life that feels easeful and manageable. And, and I know for a lot of people, meditation or getting started in meditation is really challenging. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions in the meditation world that like our minds should be totally calm and clear. And and, and my take on meditation after many years of my own practice and many years of, of working with students is that it, it's not so much that the mind needs to be clear and that if it's not clear and calm, you're doing something wrong. It's more that in the practice of meditation, even if thoughts come, can we just practice bringing the attention back to the what's real? Maybe you're focusing on that sensation of the breath. Maybe you're feeling your feet on the ground. And so we're just practicing building that strength and capacity of the mind to come back to the present moment and come back to the present moment. And I think the net result for many people is that even though there might be thoughts, many people, myself included, have that experience of feeling more calm and restored 
through that, that ongoing cultivation. And then there's also just the breathing, the, the diaphragmatic breathing, yes. of breathing in and breathing out does actually help create a little bit more calm in, in the nervous system. Oh, it does. Just, just, mm-hmm. just simple breathing alone. I so agree with you. Well, I've read enough books about meditation and articles mm-hmm. about it and practiced it enough where mm-hmm. I forgive myself if I don't yeah. reach that perfect moment of yeah. Zen because yeah. it, it is hard to get there. <laughs> for me, it's enough that I actually sit and yeah. do it. If, and yeah. so I feel I'm happy about that. I'm not yeah. making myself up over yeah. doing it right. And I, yeah. I, I really believe that's the way that you have to go into anything like that. It's like building muscle. You know, okay. you don't go to the gym and get big muscles for two okay. days at the gym. And yeah. it takes a lot of hard work. It's yeah seems to be very simple. And the reward is so great to have more peace of mind. Yeah. And one thing that I say to every person that I work with when we start is that there's no right way and there's no wrong way. There is just simply the opportunity to be curious about what's happening in our minds and to be willing over and over to come back to that present moment. And that over time, most people find that it does yield a greater sense of overall well-being. 